It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many brutes are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Reporter, to jump, the crowd, with that low plane, fine then Up for overflow, five minutes, corners, you put in a loose Leave your devil, save your devil, world in your own knees To your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it, it's pretty It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it And I feel fine Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right in the dark heart of the jungle this time, the Appalachian jungle. (laughs) I guess you could call it that. That's right, in the Great Smoky Mountains, a temperate rainforest, if there ever was one. As a matter of fact, it's raining a little bit right now, and we are in the midst of a cloud. I don't know if you can call it a cloud but it's no it's a cloud definitely fog but we are about three thousand feet up so it wouldn't surprise me if this is a cloud it's sort of a cool thing to be in the middle of <laughs> yeah, except you can't see anything <laughs> that's true well this is the hour of doom and bloom that's right welcome to the doom and bloom survival medicine hour a citadel of serenity in a seditious world I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of DoomandBloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. You absolutely are. And together, we are the gang of two. We are the prodigious pair, a courageous couple, a geezer, and a goddess. (laughs) <laughs> the Together. Bird, the bird agrees. <laughs> and I'm the parrot. <laughs> a parrot yeah, on top parrot. of all that. I covered the parrot up. We'll see if the parrot will be quiet. That would be nice, parrot. I have to tell the bird, be very, very we're, quiet. We're hunting wabbit. Yes. Well, we are here to help you guys keep it together out there, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors. No, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say... Have you been injured in an accident with a hungry, hungry hippo? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever they are available. 
That's right. And by they, I don't mean us. <laughs> us and they are two different things. Absolutely. They, yes. They, us, would be available in South Florida. There you go. <laughs> but that's probably about it. Maybe sometimes Tennessee. <laughs> well, modern medicine sure is awesome in normal times, that is. But are these normal times? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm looking at the TV, I'm reading the news, and boy, oh boy, you might see a slow downward spiral, a circling of the drain, going a heck in a proverbial handbasket. Is that what you see out there, Bunky? Well, I'll tell you, that might leave you as the guy who keeps their family healthy when things go south. You never know, you might just be the highest medical asset left in times of trouble. So show the world that you've got more sense than... Than what? Um, bag of bees. A bag of bees. That, <laughs> that sounds like a good one. And get some training. Learn something. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? And you know what? There's no better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your workplace, your school, your church safer. And they're designed indeed by a real-life medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you will agree. Our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. But don't take just our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just let us know you need the paperwork. We are here for you. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. That is so painfully obvious. So spare a little nugget of knowledge from that noggin of yours and connect with the old man and the <laughs> young beauty. A fine beauty she is. It's so easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. You know, that sound was perfect because you have the parrot. Now uh, all you need is an eye patch. That's right. <laughs> and I would have the parrot, the pirate. And the parrot. You don't look scruffy enough, though. I don't. You have to... I feel scruffy. Not shave for a few days. Let yeah. that kind of grow out. Oh, I shaved just today after, after a few days. I know, you look so We've groomed. Been on, we have been on the road. <laughs> well, tell, we'll tell people how they can get a hold of us, and we'll tell people what we've been doing after that. <laughs> Okie dokie. We are able to be contacted. Good. Email. Let's give them the email. drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can contact us at our Facebook, our group, Survival of Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. We also have a Facebook page, which is sort of the central Facebook location to get everything. It's Doom and Bloom. That's easy. Our Twitter is at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones, Nurse Amy. That's right. And don't forget our other podcast, American Survival Radio, all about current events. And you'll hear us on all sorts of land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. and also at Genesis Communications Network Live.com, GCNLive.com. Well, yes, we have been in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, We've and been we have been doing a, weeks a lot, a lot of hiking. I would say, I know how exciting. a few miles every every day, several miles, and it has been. But Pretty no, good for you, except for 
Oh, a, a blister that you got and oh, a yeah, my blister thing. And wow. I, the funny thing is I got the blister in a strange place between the big toe and the second toe at the top. That's but in between those toes. Does that mean that's that... That's a very strange place to get a blister. Does it mean maybe your a shoe is a little bit, a little too short for you? Maybe there's not enough no, space no. beyond these, the toe? Honey, these are shoes that I have worn for... Since before the year 2000, we I have worn these shoes. Every time we have done long-distance traveling and had to walk every day because we like to walk rather than take public transportation because it's healthier and then you can eat more for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> let's not take the bus. Let's walk and then we'll eat. <laughs> Absolutely. But anyway, I've been wearing these shoes out for 18 years. So, no, they're not too tight. I can wear... Big wool socks, which I have been doing. I do not understand why suddenly, after a few hikes, I have a blister. I felt the hot spot, but I didn't think it was a blister yet. It is pretty amazing then that you have managed to survive that. Oh I yes, mean, you, survive. You didn't even notice it though. You thought you felt it was a little hot, but I did. I uh, so I'm saying I would have stopped had I thought that a blister was actually forming, but it just felt like a little hot spot, and then. It didn't feel like anything. The well, la- the last hike we took yesterday, what was that, three and a half miles or four miles? Yeah, it was about four miles. Yeah, the last, I'd say, mile and a half, I felt nothing. I guess that's the blister formed and patted it. No. <laughs> I should have known when it stopped hurting that there was a problem. Well, anyhow, what you should do in these cases, of course, is when you feel the hot spot, you probably should... Do something, get yes. some get some moleskin, get Silly some duct tape me. on it. I go through everything you should do except for one thing. We talked about this in great detail mm-hmm. just last week. Yes, we did. So go back to last week's show and you will learn Bus- all care. about it. But also you have the video. We yes. have a YouTube video for it. Yes, there is a YouTube video on Which you fixing we- a blister of mine from many years ago. Yes, but I was going to say we were here in Gatlinburg. That's right. When we filmed that. We were right out here on the deck. So now maybe we should do another one with you fixing me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it Mine's not big enough to pop, though. I know. Yours is not that um, impressive. Mine was so pretty impressive. half an inch wide? Oh, yeah. It's no more than that. My, it's it's smaller between, than a dime. Yeah. It's between a quarter and a half an inch wide. It's not not that big. But I, I had another injury on our way walking to sit at a cafe on Halloween. Yes. What happened? What happened? You wound up getting bitten by something. I got stung. By a yellow jacket. I guess you don't call it a bite, though, if they sting you. They're not biting no, you. It's not, no, you can't call it a bite. It is, a, indeed, sting. a sting. And Ouch. And so, sure. the funny thing is, we're walking. It's Halloween, probably about 4.30. We want to get there early because all the little kitties, it's after school and they're, oh my gosh, in Gatlinburg, it is such a great place to spend Halloween. It is just amazing. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. The adults get as excited about dressing up for Halloween as the kids do. And so it's so cute. And some of these costumes are really Amazing! They're just so detailed. And, right. I went as a very old. Out. I went as a very old man. 
very convincing. Yeah, I, you, I hate to say no, it. No, you but... went as a doctor, <laughs> incognito, a doctor yeah. incognito. But anyway, we have our special spot. It's on the second floor. It's an outside deck where we can sit and have some snacks and look down at all the people walking by, which is really fun. So anyway, we're walking there, and I thought a leaf landed on my head because it's been very windy and the leaves are falling off the trees. So I reach up to take the leaf off my head and immediately, immediately get stung, which I cursed out loud. Thankfully, there was no little (laughs) kids around and threw it to the ground and stomped on it. I say I had pretty good reaction time there. That's right. I didn't have to think about what just happened. My brain immediately said, kill. (laughs) Kill. You just got hurt. There's no hesitation in my reaction time. I know if we ever get attacked by someone who's trying to harm us, they're they're, they're not even going to know what happened because you have lightning reaction too. Whenever you hear noises, you're always like, bam, you're really quick. So... Someone better not mess with us. (laughs) They will not be able to realize what's happening. Well, let's talk a little bit about wasp things since you mentioned it. They're very, very common. Uh, Yellow jackets are common in in this area, in a lot of areas, really, throughout the country. And uh, usually during the warmer months, it was actually pretty warm. warm It was a warm Halloween. Halloween. I think it was a high of 70. Yeah, where we were. It was very warm. Right. And so where people are outside or for longer periods of time, there are more, obviously, wasp stings. Luckily, they're, the bird is... I know, commenting, uh, commenting in the Commenting in the I, background. Maybe we might not be able to hear it, though. I have pillows. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, in any case, wasps are like bees and hornets. They're mm-hmm. equipped with a stinger as a means of self-defense. Now, a bee can only sting you once because its stinger gets stuck in the skin of the victim. And, indeed, when it flies away, it actually pulls out part of its guts. And so it's, that's it for a bee. However, a wasp can, sping, can sting more than once during an attack. I'll tell you why. Unless, Unless what? it Unless gets stomped on by right. my shoe. <laughs> right. In your case, that wasp will never sting anybody again. Good. But in general, the wasp stingers remain intact. So the thing that's important to know is that you probably won't have to actually take out a stinger like you would with a bee sting, but the wasp venom can certainly cause pretty significant pain and irritation. Mm -hmm. The the majority of people don't have sting allergies. They'll show only sort of minor symptoms during or after a wasp sting uh, sharp pain and burning is that's what you had right <laughs> oh. well, i'll say and uh, you will get maybe a little redness itching and swelling as a result you have some pretty significant swelling and maybe i'll put up a picture of your uh finger in the uh, yes well you should write an article in on the, it well when in an article that we put in with our uh Podcast. Yes, I'll make sure I oh, put the a picture. Pictures. Make sure I put a picture. The rotating in. pictures. All right. So, but so, wait. So let me just mention that you can find a blog talk, right? And the link for our podcast is at the top of doomandbloom.net. There's a little podcast has earphones with a microphone, right? So that's the blog talk. And we have a little article that goes along with uh, our podcast every every week. So you can also find it at doomandbloom.net. 
So anyhow, you're, you're likely to develop a raised welt around the sting site. Sometimes you see a little tiny white mark in the middle of the welt where the actual stinger punctured your skin. And usually the uh, pain and swelling recedes within several hours of being stung. I would say that that would be what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Now, there are larger local reactions, and that's uh, what we call more pronounced symptoms that are associated with a, a wasp or a bee sting. And people who have larger local reactions maybe have may have an allergic aspect to it. They don't experience life-threatening symptoms. They don't stop breathing or anything like that. But they can get pretty significant redness, pretty significant swelling. And that increases for a day or two, maybe after the sting. And you can also get some generalized symptoms like nausea and vomiting, things like that. Those are things that can definitely happen. Now, most of the time, these still subside on their own over the course, of, in this case, of a few days, instead of a few hours, a few days or so. Right. So if that happens, you probably should let your doctor know. They might give you an antihistamine medication like Benadryl to reduce your discomfort. You should have Benadryl as part of your survival medical supplies. Anyhow, it's very, very useful. But having... So, so a, what did we do? We used a an antihistamine that works pretty fast called uh, well we used two things actually because I was afraid I took Claritin and right. we also used neosinephrine <laughs> so you were all antihistamined up I you know what I was not going to take a chance when I was feeling that tightness I wanted to watch the little kitties do their Halloween trick or treating so I probably overdid it but I used both of those and we bought Benadryl has a brand of um itch liquid that came in a like a little roller dispenser yes. that you roll on your finger and it dispenses the liquid so i put that on as a local uh hopefully anesthetic just because the pain was so bad and the swelling oh my gosh and by the way it still hurts what's today the today is third friday i know but what day Oh, what day of the second already? Yeah, the second of November. Wait, it was Wednesday happened. on Halloween, right. so it's been almost two days right. since I got bitten. And you still are uncomfortable. You know, I feel like a little bubble underneath there. I could pop. Feel that? Push your finger around. You feel that bubble popping around? Yeah, I still don't think you have a stinger in there or anything. No, definitely not a stinger. I think it's just like a little pocket of inflammation in there, which is good because my body attacked it. That's right. <laughs> Now, sometimes your body <laughs> and its immune system can go a little haywire, and then and that's you can what I was have, afraid of. <laughs> right, you can have anaphylaxis, and anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction, which gives you all of this stuff, local stuff, but also gives you hives or itching in areas of the body that are not affected by the sting. It could swell your face up, your lips, your throat, causing breathing difficulties like wheezing or gasping. To make you dizzy, your blood pressure can drop, you can faint, uh, you can have all sorts, gosh, just all sorts of stuff, racing pulse, things like that. In those cases, you need things like EpiPens. Now, there is also, there not only the brand name EpiPens, which are pretty expensive, but there are also generic versions of auto injectors that, that are on the market now. And if you ever have had a response like this to a bee sting or a wasp sting, you certainly should have those available. That is something that's important. Another thing that we didn't do because we were out, but 
Uh, oh, actually, what we did do, we took some ice yes. from your glass. Yes, from the water. And we applied it to the uh, injured area. Yes. And a, uh, applying a cold pack to the, the wound yep. side is pretty good to the reduce. The cold pack really felt good. Right, to reduce swelling and pain. That's very important. Of course, we wash the area. And so these things are pretty useful. Uh, some people use calamine lotion. Some people use hydrocortisone cream, too. Mm-hmm. So just a lot, a lot of different things that you can do to deal with that. So that was one interesting thing that happened. Another interesting yeah. thing, interesting, is that <laughs> you know on our many hikes in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, we often come across old cabins and uh, all sorts of really interesting oldie goldie stuff there. Now some of them are in the middle of the woods and they actually have been refurbished to their previous glory most of them however are just a foundation with the remains of maybe an old fireplace saw saw a lot of those Uh, people grew up boy i'll tell you on these hard scrabble farms they lived their lives there they had their children there they died there Uh, and you could see that there was just all of this all of this hard living that was going on there so this show is it's already after Halloween, but I'm going to tell you a horror story anyhow. And that is, in centuries past, that women married as teenagers, and they oftentimes had eight to ten children. Now, that sounds like a horror story in and of itself. Right. But that's not the horror story. What if I told you that the big question was with pregnancy back then and childbirth is if the woman would even survive the events at all? Sure enough, childbirth was so dangerous back then that some women would make out their last will and testament as soon as they found out that they were pregnant. Uh, Let's go all the way back in America's history. Let's go all the way back to the Mayflower. On the Mayflower, the boat that took the pilgrims to, or the Puritans, to America, uh, there were three women that were pregnant when they boarded the Mayflower. One child was actually born during the voyage. His name was Oceanus. They named him Oceanus Hopkins. And he, unfortunately, he, he survived the birth, but he did not survive the first winter in Massachusetts. There was another one that was born on the ship, but just off Cape Cod, just as they were getting there. And his name is Peregrine White. And he actually lived to a very ripe old age the, the third child was actually still born and was born or not born dead i guess uh, after the arrival at plymouth and the mother unfortunately died in childbirth so three people and essentially there was one child that survived and and lived through childhood and childhood two only two of the three mothers survived that's so sad. So in addition to the fear of death and of the fear of the child dying, you know, you the, your childbirth was a ordeal. I mean, it's, it's, it's an ordeal as it is, not easy as it is. But I have, I'm actually really surprised that these women got on these boats pregnant. I mean, I think I, as a husband, I probably would have said, you know what, honey, um, I'll come back and get you. After the child has grown up, or to just not go on it at that point. I mean, I'm, that's very scary. I'm sure that was a personal decision in the family. Can you imagine? But, 
Like, uh, hey, let me take my pregnant wife on this voyage that we're unsure of if we're even going to make it. There were two different uh, voyages around this time. One was the voyage into Virginia and Jamestown. Right. Those were mostly men. I'm mean, having almost all men. Yes. And they were sort of adventurers and and folks outdoors like that. men, right, right? Things right. like that. But this a group that went to Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Pilgrims or the Puritans, they were basically a families. whole spiritual community. Exactly. They were bringing families to start a community. Right uh, of of religious freedom. So I guess for the, what they wanted to do and how they wanted to, um, right perform their religious beliefs without being persecuted. Exactly, and they I guess that involved bringing your whole family if you had to. Of course. So, um, the funny thing about this, unfortunately for the women that were Puritans, is that. In Puritan communities, pain during childbirth was considered to be a something that you deserved. That's hard, and that's because I'm there sorry. was something in the Bible. There's a passage uh, in the I know, Bible. I understand, but called it's just, Genesis three sixteen. No I'm, woman deserves pain for any reason. That's true. Ever Genesis three sixteen is not John three sixteen. John three sixteen is the one where God loved so loved the. The, the so loved man that he gave his only begotten son. Right. This is that's John three sixteen, uh, paraphrased, and Genesis three sixteen. However, decreed that there would always be pain in childbirth, as God's punishment for woman leading Adam astray, Eve leading Adam astray, and sure enough, this is something that all women afterward who came afterwards were supposed to have this kind of pain. I mean, I guess there was whiskey and i guess there was uh stuff like that but i don't doubt very much that the puritans were drinking a lot of whiskey no i don't believe that they were sadly (laughs) so while stories of maternal newborn deaths unfortunately were very very common back then now women's chance of dying during childbirth were between at least one and two percent for each birth now if a woman gave birth to eight to ten children if you accumulate all of those 1% to 2% chances, well, her chances of eventually dying in childbirth were actually pretty high. And there were worse if you were the baby. The chances of a child dying before his fifth birthday were estimated to be about 20%. And gosh, uh, all the abandoned graveyards that we pass here as we hike in the National Park, they're just strewn with markers for children and infants who just did not survive the rough conditions. Most of them... Uh, less than five years old and and many of them less than a month although you can stay the same i guess honestly for cemeteries in the middle of large cities for that era now interestingly you would think that the richer you were the more likely you were to do well with your births and deliveries and your survival rate and things like that but rich women used something called wet nurses to breastfeed their babies for them these, these are women that perpetually kept themselves uh, filled with milk and made a job of going and feeding rich women's babies. Mm-hmm. Now, the hormones produced during breastfeeding are actually nature's way of spacing out children. And so rich women often ended up having more pregnancies than poor women 
didn't, which is the opposite of what you might think ordinarily, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result, remember I said 1 to 2% death rate per baby or per pregnancy, pregnancy, sure enough, they might have had even worse outcomes than poor women. So given your chances of dying and the, during pregnancy and childbirth, boy, I'll tell you, reproductive survival was anything but a sure thing. And, and let's think about if you were a slave in the southern states, you can just imagine how bad things were. I believe that the infant mortality rate was about 50% oh my gosh. back then. So really terrible, terrible stuff. And of course, then medical doctors came. And medical doctors began to take didn't part. help. Began to take part in childbirth clear. for good or bad over time. They had, of course, the latest medical knowledge at their fingertips, but the latest 18th century or 19th century medical knowledge, well, not always such a good thing, I would, th I would think. Uh, midwives were and are actually today often still preferred by women. And there's certainly a lot to say to having personal experience on your side. Well, even if you don't have personal experience, it's still just, just something about a woman taking care of a woman in that kind of situation is very comforting. Yes, indeed. Because <laughs> if we haven't actually experienced it yet, we probably will. And we're just a little more understanding, I think. Exactly, exactly. Not right. that you're not understanding because you're a very caring person, but you don't understand everything a woman goes through in our, in our entire lives. Well, let me tell you that in the past, the physicians, which were almost all male at the time... Of course they were. Well... You know, maybe they came with access and authority that comes with the title and the ability to use hospitals, but mm -hmm. indeed they didn't necessarily have the bedside manner uh, that would really help in these situations. Well, also, and I think you're going to get to this, the hospitals themselves were not exactly the best places to be giving birth because they were full of diseases. You're right. As a matter of fact, the first hospitals in the United States were meant for poor people that couldn't get doctors to come to their homes. Before we understood the mechanism of infection, many of these places were death traps. As a matter of fact, doctors were often the sources of infection themselves in women uh, uh, that, are, that were in labor mm -hmm. because they were going from patient to patient with unwashed hands and unwashed instruments. And as a result, hospitals were they were pretty scary. They were places of last resort as you found so many women dying from infections after childbirth. Now, there were some great advances that uh, were put forth to save millions of lives, and by people that you probably will never hear about. In 1842, as a matter of fact, Thomas Watson first recommended that physicians and birth attendants wash their hands and use chlorine solution mm -hmm. between patients. And bleach, I guess, is what that there, he's talking about there. Mm -hmm. In 1847, just a few years later, there was a guy named uh, Ignat Semmelweis, and he re reduced the rate of fever in his obstetric ward by ordering strict hand washing as a standard protocol. First Good time, guy. First time that happened. Excellent idea. <laughs> now, those days, uh, however, that kind of idea was rejected in general they, by the medical industry. They did not understand the, how diseases were being communicated. Absolutely. Now, around the same time, there were other uh, 
advances, if you want to call them that, yeah. in childbirth. And one was the introduction of anesthetics. There was a dentist named William Morton. He developed the use of ether for surgery in 1846. And an obstetrician, Sir James uh, Simpson, mm -hmm. introduced chloroform as an anesthetic in 1847. These became used commonly in, um, in childbirth, especially among the higher classes. And uh, Queen Victoria, for example, used chloroform during her eighth eighth delivery. Well, I have to say, the eighth one probably came out rather quickly and easily. <laughs> I'm not sure how much ether or chloroform it they would have had to give huh? her, right? <laughs> After the eighth one. But Your body remembers what to do and does it more efficiently on the eighth time. <laughs> well, you figure, you see how even a, the Queen of England wound up having tons and tons of pregnancies. Yes. You know, that's just the way it was back then. Now, in 1914, there was a method called twilight sleep that was developed, mm -hmm. and that's something that uh, used something called scopolamine mixed with morphine. And the mother essentially wound up sleeping throughout the entire delivery. She woke up with a baby in her arms, I guess. Um, well, I'll tell you what. I did have some patients who got that when I first started as a labor room nurse in 1987. They were still using that for a few patients. Yes. They were not routinely allowing patients to have the epidurals. They would offer knocking Things them out. Like knocking them but out. But I tell you what, those women were not really knocked out. The husbands had to leave. They forced the husband to leave, and the woman actually experienced the pain and would scream and freak out sometimes. But then she'd go right back to sleep after the contraction. And she'd forget all about and it. And she would not remember after the baby was born anything that happened. But she would yell and curse and <laughs> yes. and thrash about. Yes. And I and, remember those days also. Yeah, we're not talking about just like, you know, it was not like a lot of sleeping except in between the contractions. But they were <laughs> feeling what was happening, but then post-birth forgot about it. And I always thought that was just so weird, and I'm so glad they stopped doing that. It was very frightening. Well, I'll tell you, it took until the mid-20th century for advances in medicine to finally outpace the access to good medicine for the lower classes of folks uh, to medical care. Uh, when one doctor was appointed as a city health inspector for uh, one area of New York City in 1901, she found that there were 1,500 newborn baby deaths in the district every week. That's pretty amazing. This uh, doctor was named, by the way, Sarah Josephine Baker, and her crusade to improve prenatal care and child health practices involved inventing infant formula, uh, opening clinics. Uh, she launched school lunch programs for uh, children's health. Uh, she trained uh, babysitters and birth attendants, operated uh, something called a milk station or various milk stations in the city. And all of this uh, resulted in a huge decrease in infant and child deaths. So I hope somewhere there's a statue erected to this uh, lady doctor. She really she did. She does deserve it. She, she did quite a bit for New York City uh, health. Now, the uh, main dangers for women in childbirth at the time, however, they, they were the same that you would see today if some long-term survival event actually occurred. You'd see prolonged labors, you'd see excessive bleeding, you'd see infections, 
to babies that are abnormal positions maybe in the uterus, um, narrow pelvises, people that are just built sort of narrow, uh, lar with large infants. Uh, these are going to be difficult to deliver. They were difficult to deliver in 1900. They'd be difficult to deliver if something bad happens. Uh, I'll tell you, in the old days, when it was clear that after two or three days of labor, there was no progress being made, well, sure enough, a doctor might use instruments either to pull the baby free, um, like forceps, things like that, or to crush crush the baby's oh, skull and oh, remove it. That's yep, you heard me. I mean, that's me. exactly I know, what happened. I know, I know. That had to be done to try and save the, the mother, but oh, so sad. It was terrible. I'll tell you that in our books on... Uh, obstetrics and midwifery from the 19th century we collect books from the 19th century medical books there were chapters in every obstetric textbook on destructive procedures to kill and remove a baby that they was had not to. going to be born they had to what right. were they going to do if they left it in there they knew the mother was going to die That's right. it was the only possible way to save the mother who probably had other children that needed her. That's true. I mean, of course, it's to save the life, but, you know, moms are really important. That's, we, we needed to keep our women around, and, boy, I'm glad they did something to try and save them, rather than just saying, oh, sorry, your baby's dead, and in a couple of weeks you're going to die of sepsis. And, unfortunately, you know, that too bad. is something that sometimes happened, too. Sometimes uh, there would be excessive bleeding that, was another common problem that, right. that in childbirth that's still a risk in childbirth today but we have recourse to drugs these days that help to combat that in olden times there was almost nothing a midwife or doctor can do besides maybe massaging uterus yep. try to firm hold, it up that hold way hold the uterus right to stop a post-birth hemorrhage and many women literally bled to death i uh, can't tell you how many deliveries i had to hold that uterus from absolutely. the outside and the inside if you didn't do it, you, the second you let go, the woman would start bleeding. That's I mean, right. That was, it happens today. Oh, yeah. There are women who bleed to death today in hospitals after they have babies. It's super scary. And infection, as Husbands you mentioned before. Husbands never leave them. Never, ever, ever leave the room. That's if right. If you can help it, always stay with the mom. That's right. Always. That's right. Uh, infection, that was another... Uh, big scourge of childbirth you mentioned that exactly when we're very susceptible to susceptible susceptible to infection yep um, during and immediately after the process of childbirth uh, and a fever was a very common thing that occurred afterwards and it could <sighs> be deadly yes usually it would occur one or two days after the birth and it would get worse over the course of oh, i'd say about a week or so and it had an almost inevitable outcome before uh, uh, there was the advent of ad antibiotics. I mean, usually it was pretty, pretty tragic because what would happen is it would, the infection would wind up going in the blood and cause something called septicemia, and that was usually fatal. Now, the greatest improvement in the childbearing lives of women occurred as a result of not having as many babies. Cut right? down the risk. Exactly. This phenomenon happened as couples increasingly saw smaller families as the desired norm. Mm -hmm. And they modified their sexual practices accordingly, learned natural family planning or used uh, condoms, things like that. And so women wound up 
being emancipated from some of these dangers. Uh, and it probably was a very important contributing factor to, uh, to these, saving the lives of all these women. There's still many families that were large by modern standards, but these were less common. By 1900, for example, the average married woman could expect to bear about four children. That's about half the number that her mother or grandmother might have anticipated having. And today the numbers are indeed much lower. So childbirth, still an ordeal, of course, is much safer today for mothers. Children are much more likely to survive to adulthood and better knowledge of natural family planning methods give people in austere settings the option of deciding when and how many children to have. So you as a medic in a survival setting would actually have a little better shot at having your people survive their pregnancies in childbirth than other ones, uh, than, than other times. This isn't because we are delivering all our babies in hospitals, although it is a more controlled environment. Uh, but the truth of the matter is it wasn't until maybe the mid-1930s when antibiotics were introduced there you go. that a sharp reduction in the maternal death rate occurred. And, and an understanding about infections that exactly. went hand-in-hand. Hand. When they understood infections then they could figure out some things to treat them. And luckily, they figured out antibiotics. Right. Mostly by accident. It's amazing, yes, how, <laughs> how those, those occurred. Uh, Dr. Alexander Fleming was a microbiologist who was a messy, messy person. And he decided to just leave his, <laughs> Apparently. His, his petri dishes full of bacteria sitting just around. Out, sitting around the lab while he went on vacation when he came back. He noticed that some of the bacterial colonies had been overgrown by yeast, and wherever the yeast was, there was indeed no bacterial colonies. And so that's how he, he found that the yeast was a penicillium uh, species of yeast, and that's how he figured out penicillin. We'll talk about that in a future it's show. A, it's a very, it's a very interesting it story. It is a very interesting story. And it's a story that we talk about in our book, uh, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Indeed, we have a book coming out that's all about infectious disease and how to treat them with antibiotics, the uh, kind of antibiotics that are available to you, the average person, without a prescription in veterinary form, what we call veterinary equivalents. And if you've listened to our show or read our articles, you know that we've written about this a lot. Of course, this is meant for storing for times of trouble, exactly. not for everyday use, but it's important for the medic not, to have some exactly. of these. Do not treat yourself today yes. or tomorrow or your next door neighbor or your child with these antibiotics because if something happens and you go to the hospital, you have treated, you've diagnosed and treated something without a medical license. That's, that's right. That's and you are responsible. Store these antibiotics, folks. It's illegal and punishable <laughs> by law, so store these things and have the knowledge of how to use them for Safely. situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. I know. I don't know how many times we have to say that, but it's not for today. <laughs> there you this go. is dire times, emergencies. So if you are, by the way, interested in our book, our book is in formatting. It should be... Uh, she should be sending it to me today, actually. Good. I figured out the categories. I think I have to put keywords. We, we're almost done with the description. 
Um, so right. we're getting there. I have the cover. We figured out the subtitle. And um, yeah, we just needed to adjust a little bit. Oh, with the index. We have to finish the index because she's got to get me the page numbers for the index. And that's a pain in the butt. But, <laughs> but, yes. but we still expect, expect it to be out late this month. And if you're interested in the book, uh, you can pre-order it on uh, Amazon, and you can pre-order it on well, our website eventually at on Amazon. Eventually on Amazon, hopefully in the next couple of days, because you have to have all those pieces of information before you can put it as a pre-sale on Amazon. However, I have it as a pre-order on, like you said, store.doomandbloom.net. Okay. Well, let's see. What else can we talk about? We also, uh, like I, uh, I said earlier, we had talked last week about blisters and splinters and burns, but there are other kinds of hiking injuries that can really ruin a backcountry outing, I'll tell you that much. And one injury that's commonly seen in Appalachian Trail hikers, and by the way, a lot of the Appalachian Trail goes right through here, about 70 miles of it, goes right through the National Park, right here in the Great Smoky Mountains, uh, so we do see some of this from time to time. One of those injuries is iliotibial band syndrome, ITBS. The iliotibial band is essentially a ligament that runs down your thigh and all the way down to your shin. And that's what secures your knee in place. Your knee is in a certain area and your, your kneecap stays in a certain place because of the iliotibial band and hiking gives a lot of punishment to this band but without if you but if you stretch if you pace yourself it's great but if you don't stretch you don't pace yourself this iliotibial band can become inflamed and cause some pretty impressive discomfort uh, itbs syndromes a range from stinging sensations just above the knee joint to a swelling or a thickening of the tissue in the area where the band moves over the uh, large bone in your upper leg, the femur. Uh, the stinging sensation just above the knee is felt usually sort of on the outside of the knee. Sometimes you might feel along the entire length of the iliotibial band, but in any case, you may not feel pain immediately. You may feel vague stinging, like I said, but you may not feel pain, but over the course of time, you know, oh boy, you will feel pain. It certainly can intensify over time. And it's most commonly felt when the foot strikes the ground as you are walking. And pain persists for quite a while after you're done with your, your walking for the day. It may be present above or below the knee. It, anywhere where the uh, iliotibial band attaches to the knee or the tibia the uh, uh, front bone of the two lower leg bones oh that's a good description there there you go and it also helps it also hurts rather if you twist your knee to let's say turn a corner mm -hmm. so if you do that quickly that might be a mistake now in, in this circumstance you need to take a day off this in, ligament is inflamed because of overwork and it is done you got to rest it this condition can become severe very quickly, and that can end your Appalachian Trail hike. It, you got to listen to your body anytime that you do these kinds of exertions, especially if you're not going to be right near where a hospital is. You, and you certainly don't want 
to have a couple of mandatory weeks off the trail. Now there's another uh, tendon that's a uh, big issue and that's the Achilles tendon and people probably have heard of that more than the iliotibial uh, band. Uh, the Achilles tendon is located on the back of your leg just above the heel and this tendon stretches and compresses when you move your foot and it can cause an inflammation if it's understretched and overused just like the iliotibial band. Now for these kinds of injuries ice packs might be decent, cold packs, uh, these shake and break packs that they have they may be useful to decrease pain and swelling. The iliotibial band can be helped by using the same strategy for example that are used in sprains. Uh, the RICE, R-I-C-E, R for rest to avoid worsening the problem, I for ice packs to decrease pain and swelling, uh, C for compression, in other words a good ace wraps or wrapping or, or wrapping uh, the area around the band to provide support that also helps decrease swelling, and E, elevation to reduce pain inflammation. Uh, of course, you're elevating it, you are resting it because you are not going to be walking around like that. And of course, stretching is important. There are specific stretches that can help with this condition. You want to do a lengthening stretch. The most effective lengthening stretch for the iliotibial band is to stretch it across the hip and outside of the leg. You cross the injured leg behind the other leg and then you lean a little bit towards the uninjured side. And then you stretch with your arms over your head and create the shape of a bow, essentially, from ankle to hand with the injured iliotibial band on the outside. So you're, it's almost like a bow, like a bow and arrow. Then you bring your arms down to touch the ankle on the inside of the bow, and you hold that for about 15 seconds. Try to repeat it about 10 times and do it a couple of times a day. That sounds like a nice stretch. It is actually a good stretch. You probably do that anyway. And there are other stretches too. <laughs> There's a side leg lift. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and lying on your side, you want to raise your top leg straight up. Then you extend the leg backward mm -hmm. and move it, then move it forward, backward and forward, and okay. return it to the starting position. And you want to have a straight line from shoulder to ankle with the top hip slightly in front. And then you perform the sequence slowly with the toe point pointed sort of down. You want to build up to about three sets of 10 reps for each leg if you can. Oh, that's a, a big um, dancing thing. When I used to be a dancer, that's how we would uh, exercise our legs. Raising those legs, bringing that leg forward and backward. It's not easy, by the way. <laughs> yes, I, be I, I believe it. it. It is a lot of uh, tension on the hips. Well, here's one. That. And here's one that's even a little more difficult. You balance on one foot. It's called a single leg squat. You balance on one foot. Then you bend the knee and lower hips one quarter of the way down to the ground. And you make sure that the knee stays straight over the foot and doesn't collapse inward. Mm -hmm. So that's a sort of good way, I think, to stretch and strengthen the leg. That And that is, of course, very, very, very important. I just want to say one thing. When I said dancer, I, I didn't mean like exotic dance or anything. No. I, I, no, I did ballet and tap when I was a child. <laughs> I just want to mention that. And what other kinds of dancers are there? Well, <laughs> there are, there are uh, we'll call them adult dancers. Aha. Uh -huh. I, I have never been, nor do I desire to be one of those. Okay, very good. Uh, I'm glad that Personally, I'm glad that we cleared others that. Others may, I, <laughs> and I have no judgment whatsoever, at all. 
Good. Well, I just personally have not. I'm glad we. I'm glad that we cleared that up. Yes. Of course, there's lots of other stretches that you can do beyond these stretches. You can always treat with vitamin I. You know what vitamin, vitamin I, I? You know what vitamin I is? No. Ibuprofen. Oh, <laughs> vitamin I. And I another vitamin I is ice, of course, as I mentioned before, and rest. So these are things that are very, very important. Now, there may come a time where you actually have to see a doctor, and uh, if you have these issues and on the trail mm-hmm. and the pain just isn't getting any better with rest, or you have be- begun to lose mobility of your ankles, well, this can be pretty serious. And continuing your trek on the trail, that can be a bad idea. It can cause permanent damage. So please be very careful. And I'm going to talk just a second about fatigue. Fatigue's a very, very real threat for most hikers in all situations. Once you're overtired, you don't perform as well. Your judgment is bad. You make poor choices. It promotes injury. You definitely have to monitor your body's reaction to strenuous activities and build up endurance. That's very, very important. Find somewhere to rest if that means having a zero-mile day while you're on your multi-mile backcountry expedition. Well, you know, you just got to do it. If you end your day early or under your goal, don't beat yourself up over it. You needed it. After a day of rest, you'll be replenished and you'll have the trail on your mind again. So Absolutely. that is very, Good very, plan, honey. very important. So, gosh, I think that's really about all the time that we have this time around for the Survival Medicine Hour. Good Thank- news. I got a word from our formatter. We're going to have the book tonight so I can finish the index. Okay, Woo-hoo! so we'll get to work on Woo-hoo! the index and then get it to printers mm-hmm. and... And something good to Amen. good to know. It, that is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. This is Joe Alton for Amy Alton. See you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.